You're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love to run, period. You can always run faster. Forever, you're going to feel something. You're going to run into roadblocks, but that's also going to teach you how to handle things in life. I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. There's like two voices in my head, alpha and beta. All I was really trying to do was just keep moving forward. Every single runner knows what that means. My life has a purpose, and maybe it's not what I thought it was going to be, but I think that that does help me. There's a lot of people that have different gifts, and they don't use it. I think if we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family. If we're really good, we could do something for our community, wherever we live. What's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraioli. We are back with the fourth and final installment of our Pillars of Performance series. And here with me to set it up is my right-hand man, Chris Douglas. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. You're a regular now. I am a regular, and I'm loving it. I'm loving it. And I'm loving this series, I must say, because... I feel like I've learned so much, and I think that this is just a very evergreen. I'm, but I should just say I'm just stoked that you, that you took this route on something like this and made a series because I think there's so many runners who are going to benefit. Not even just runners, triathletes, whatever sport you do. I think this is something that that will benefit a lot of people, and this episode is no different. Yeah, my hope for this series before we get into talking about my conversation with Starla Garcia, who is an Olympic trials level marathoner, also a registered dietitian. Um, the pillars of performance really are just what I think are the foundational elements for sustained performance over time. And if I've done my job right, these conversations will be good a year from now, five years from now. Um, you should be able to keep coming back to them and learn you know, what you need to do training-wise, you know, strength training and body maintenance-wise. Mentally, um, we just had an episode out. Uh, a couple weeks ago with Dr. Justin Ross talking about the mental side of things and then also, you know, nutritionally. Um, so that if you, you know, you're never going to get all of those things perfect, but if you're doing a pretty good job in all of those areas, I mean, you're going to set yourself up for sustainable success, um, over a long period of time. Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think this episode in particular, I think Starla Garcia really lays out what can only be called sort of a masterclass on fueling for optimal performance. Um, and just, understanding, well, I, I feel like there's this, there's this concept that we just need to bury, which is like, let me go through this race, taking as little fuel as possible. Yeah. And that's success. If you can only do one or two gels, because I think that concept, I mean, we just need to get rid of that and have it be almost flip it where you should be taking as much nutrition as you possibly can to make sure you maintain your optimal performance throughout the workout. Yeah. As becomes obvious in this conversation, I mean, Starla really lives up to her name. She's a total star. Uh, I mean, she's just an incredible runner, the nicest person, but I mean, she's just like no BS, tells it how it is. And I mean, shares a lot of her own struggles with, you know, relationship to food, body image stuff. We, we start off the conversation talking about that before getting tactical on different strategies that we can employ from a nutrition standpoint. But I mean, the, I mean, the, the main takeaways, you have to eat, like you have to eat. I mean, it's as simple and as, as hard as that. And I don't know, for whatever reason, um, a lot of runners struggle to, to do that, do that well, 
don't know what it means to eat well. And we try to like knock down all of those walls in this conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I loved about it. I mean, it's really almost like a prescription for pre-race fueling during race, post-race fueling. And then the idea of like taking the elements into account, I thought one thing that was really interesting that I hadn't thought about before, someone who has a decent amount of body fat on them at all times is when you're cold during a race, you need to up your fueling intake to, to compensate for your body needing to use, um, you know, it's energy to stay warm yeah. um, that she mentioned at Boston, the same Boston that you were at. When was that? 2018? That was 2018. I mean, that was the, I always call it like the Des year or the Yuki year. Yeah. Um, but it was like that epic, uh, epically cold, like rain and, and windy year. And yeah, Starla, Starla talks about how, how much she took in during that race because she needed to, because her body was just working so hard to like, you know, not shut down, you know, to, to stay warm. And, and I mean, that was like, you know, just such a huge takeaway. And I think that's what got a lot of people that day, aside from the conditions is, I mean, it was just so hard to like get anything down. Um, even if you had like the best intentions, it was so hard to get anything down. And I mean, that, I think sent a lot of people to the sideline. I shared my own experience in that race where, mm-hmm. I mean, I grabbed a bottle from my wife six miles in, which had 320 calories and um, like 80 grams of carbohydrate. And I, if I hadn't gotten that bottle, I don't know that I would have finished the race. And I mean, I was running on fumes by the end, but I literally couldn't take gels out of my pocket. And I was, I was planning to. Um, so, you know, we talked about the importance of that. Um, we talked about, you know, best practices for, what you should eat before a run, easy runs versus long runs versus speed workouts, when you should fuel and how you should fuel during a run, and then also how to kickstart the recovery process ASAP afterward. Um, And best ways that you can do that, um, even and especially if you have a busy life. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's so many great nuggets. I mean, the one that I'm putting into place immediately is I'm a morning person. I try to do my workouts before my kids or before my whole family's awake. And if it was less than an hour, I'm just drinking some water and, and hitting the road or whatever workout I'm doing. Never again. Never again. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people fall into the same boat as you. And we talked about that, like how to fuel if you're a morning runner versus someone mm-hmm. who runs at lunch or in the evening. So um, this is, I mean, if I can say so myself, this is a great conversation. So <laughs> I, I mean, Starla is just, I mean, she is a rock star um, and I'm super excited to share this with everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, this is the last episode in the, in the series of Pillars of Performance. And I think each one of these stands alone as a great episode. But if you really think about it, like this is what's going to put, hold the foundation for your, you know, for, for all of your success in running. I mean, this just lays the, the blueprint to be able to achieve all that. Yeah. If the gas tank is empty or you're putting bad gas into the tank, I mean, you're only going to get so far and you're leaving a lot on the table. And, um, I can't thank Starla enough. I learned a lot during this conversation and I know yeah. that people listening to it will as well. Yeah. Well, before we get to the interview, should we shout out our sponsors? Let's do that. Who do we got on tap for this week? Everyone's favorite tracksmith. My favorite for sure. Um, can't speak for everyone else out there, but it should be your favorite. I mean, this brand is is great. I mean, if you're a fan of like the sport of, of running, um, you know, if you consider yourself a runner, that's the lifestyle that you live. Um, you know, that's the culture that you identify with. I mean, Tracksmith's your brand. I mean, they, they do it better than any other brand in the space. They celebrate the history and culture of the sport. They put out high quality products, apparel, um, and even footwear now that you can buy. 
but they also just produce like some of the best and most compelling content that I've read in recent years. And they put on cool events. I mean, last summer uh, here in San Francisco where we live, but around the country, they had a series of Twilight 5Ks, which I think they're going to do again this year. I just got an email not that long ago that in, in less cities, but they're going to do the same with the mile. Um, I mean, they have at their track house in Boston, there's multiple runs and workouts out of there every week. Um, they've built like real community in places around the world that they're, they're doing an awesome job of that even online. So, I mean, I can't say enough good things about this brand, but I mean, they, they started as an apparel brand, uh, back in 2014, I think it was, I was one of the first people to wear, uh, one of their original products, which is called the Longfellow short, um, which doesn't get quite as much attention now because they've got a wider, <laughs> uh, a wider range of, of other shorts that you can check out. And the one that I tell people to add to their wardrobe is the Alston half tight. I've talked about it on every episode of this series <laughs> so far. So I just really want to hammer it home. Um, whether or not you're a half tight person, uh, the Alston half tight, I mean, is just everything that you could ever want in a running bottle. I'll say that. I mean, so, you know, it's a half tight goes down to your knee. Uh, it's not going to go anywhere because it's got these little grippies that hold it in place. I mean, you can get a lined version or an unlined version, either are comfortable. I have them, I have them both. They come in a, a wide array of colors. They got plenty of pockets. I don't know. I mean, when I was younger, I, I could have cared less about pockets. I actually would like shove my key like under my car. Um, but now it's like, I'm not going to do that because someone will probably drive off <laughs> with my car. Um, but these half tights have three pockets in the back. They've got a zip one that's very secure. You can put your keys, your credit card, whatever in that. Um, and then there's one on each side, which I mean, that's that's my marathon short for a reason because I can stuff it full of gels and they're easy access. Uh, but you know they're not going anywhere either. I'm not worried about them falling out. So I can't say enough good things about the Alston half tight. I know you recently got a pair and you were a Reggie half tight guy, which is another great product yeah. that they have. But now it's like okay, you've seen the light. Yeah, I mean i I can't imagine a road race where I'm not going to wear them. So I don't I don't know what else I can say about a product that they're they're my new race short. That's a singing that's a singing endorsement to me. I mean, it's my go fast short. I mean, so you know, I'm a I'm a big like get yourself in the right mindset guy. So I have certain shoes that I'll pull out when I'm doing different types of runs. I got my easy day shoe, I got my speed workout shoe, I got my race day shoe. These are my go fast half tights. Um, I put them on and it's like, all right, I'm going to do a speed workout or I'm racing, and it puts me in that mindset. Um, and yeah, can't say enough good things about them. If you want to check them out or any other products from Tracksmith, go to tracksmith.com slash Mario. That will get you free shipping on whatever it is that you purchase. And 5% of your total purchase will go to the Friendly House, which is an organization that is near and dear to me. It's in Worcester, Massachusetts. It's an actual, like, I would call it a house. It's a building um, where, you know, the community goes and they do all sorts of stuff there. I mean, they have like bingo nights, sports for kids. I mean, I went there for after school programs, summer camp. I played pity basketball. Um, I mean, it's been there forever uh, and it's done a lot for the community in Worcester, Massachusetts and 5% of every purchase. Nothing additional on your end. Tracksmith will take care of it. 5% of your purchase will go to the friendly house. And that means just a ton to me. And I'm super grateful for, you know, Tracksmith putting that offer out there um, for 5% of purchases to go to a a charitable um, cause of my choosing. I love it. I love it. Our next sponsor is Gooder. Best running sunglasses that you can have on your face. Uh, In fact, your face will thank you for putting Gooder sunglasses on them. I mean, 
these are great. They're made for running. Um, I'm a big fan of the OGs, which is their like, you know, tried and true style. Yeah, they're OG <laughs> style. They come in a wide range of colors. Uh, they, you know, they look good on on my goofy dome. Um, but they're super affordable. They're like 25 to 35 bucks a piece. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I lose sunglasses all the time or I've smashed sunglasses all the time. And, you know, I, I don't try to, I never want to, but for some reason it just happens. Sunglasses are cursed. And I would much rather do that to a 25 to $35 pair. Cause I can just pick up a new one. Um, then, you know, something that costs me 10, literally 10 times is, you know, as much. And I don't even, you know, lose these ones all that often. So I get multiple pairs. So I've got a pair in the car that I drive with. I've got a pair that I wear when I walk the dog. I have a pair that I wear on some runs. I mean, they're just very versatile. They've got a bunch of styles, bunch of different colors. Check them out at gooder.com slash Mario. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario. That's my name. Or use the code Mario15 when you check out and that will get you free shipping on your entire order. Well, let's get to this conversation. All right. With that out of the way, please enjoy my conversation with Starla Garcia. All right, Starla Garcia, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here and yeah, definitely honored to uh, sit in conversation with you today. Yeah, I'm excited to to have you. And this is the first conversation that we've ever had, but I've listened to you on a bunch of other podcasts and like my main takeaway was, okay, this woman she she gets it. Um, you know, you're a badass runner in your own right. I mean, you are an expert in just sports nutrition, you're a registered dietitian, you work with a wide range of athletes, and you've had your own struggles in the past, which I think many people here can relate to. And just to like set the table for this conversation, no pun intended, um, you know, this is part of my Pillars of Performance series. And for me, as a coach, when I look at sustainable performance, and I think the key adjective there is sustainable over a long period of time, as a as an athlete, um, as a runner who is trying to run a personal best or qualify for Boston or finish that first half marathon, whatever it happens to to be, someone who's going to live that lifestyle, there are really four pillars that you know hold up that foundation. And it's the training. You've got to have like smart, sound training that is well thought out over a long period of time. You've got to do more than just run. You've got to be an athlete. You've got to work on your strength and your athleticism. So it's it's strength and conditioning and you know what I call body maintenance as well. If you're really going to put that wear and tear on your body, you've got to take care of it in between. Um, there's the mental side of it, which you know, is a is sports psychology if we're talking about a field, but it's like just that, that mental game that we all have to play, you know, as a runner, it's not just like do the workout and show up at the, the race. There's, you know, there's a lot that goes on, you know, in between the years, so to speak, that we have to address. And then nutrition. Um, I think nutrition is a lot of times just you know, I, I don't want to say like under, you know, underrated, but like underappreciated people don't pay enough attention to it. And I mean, for, for me, I, I love analogies and the analogy that I use with the athletes I work with, I'm like, we're, we're high performance race cars and, you know, you don't just show up to the track on race day and rip around for two and a half hours. You've got to train in order to do that. You've got to take care of the car and go in for regular, you know, go in for regular maintenance. Um, 
but you also think about like just the the fueling aspect of it too it's like you know they don't put bad gas into those cars otherwise they wouldn't run well and they certainly wouldn't run for you know a long time and you know if we get into like the actual racing of it, it's like they're stopping multiple times during the race to refill their tank um because otherwise they're going to be running on fumes and that's you know that's not a good thing and and that's kind of you know that aspect of it is what i want to get into today with with you it's it's not just the in race fueling but just like how this how this nutrition piece and fueling just just fits into the the bigger picture of of being a runner and being able to perform at a high level sustainably for you know for a long time so um let's just let's just start with you first though um i'm really interested in just like your your background like how did you first get into just running and and what place does it hold in your life um, so I started uh, running actually when I was in probably third grade. I ran my first race and I won that race. Um, and my dad turned to me and he said, you know, um, if you really like running, you should just continue running and trying hard. And my dad always tried to get me to do like summer track and things like that. But I just didn't really want to. I was more of like a multi sport kid. I like played everything. Uh, I did everything when I was a kid. Um, tried it at least once or at least a season of it. Um, and I just always came back to running. It might've just been like, I was good at it right away. And like, I just gravitated toward being good at something and identifying as something. So I think, um, early on, it just gave me a place to feel like myself, to have ownership over. And I think I just really liked, um, like that feeling that it gave me at the end of it. So I liked working hard at it and then having that feeling of, okay, like I won, like, yay. Like this is a lot of fun. I know it is fun to win, um, even still as an adult, but I think I really enjoyed it so much as a kid. Um, and my dad would just like take me to practices all the time. So it was like very much like me and my father creating this relationship together, um, around running. And it was like the one it's, I wouldn't say it was a one thing that we had in common, but it was a very shared um, experience. And it continues to be that way to this day. Um, so, yeah, my dad uh, really instilled and and I would say encouraged me to continue to run um, as like a kid. And then I started to run um, in college as well. So I was uh, recruited out of high school um, early on, ran at University of Houston um, for five years. I took a fifth year. Um, and during that time, just really started to um, take an interest in nutrition. I think it was always there. But um, when I was a freshman, um, I felt like it, the curriculum that I was studying beforehand was a little bit too challenging. It was um, very intimidating for me to leave home as a really young person, especially as a Latina woman for the first time. I think I was like the first person in my family to leave school, to leave to study at such a young age and then to also be an athlete. So that was like a whole new experience that like, nobody could really guide me on. So I think a lot of that and that pressure um, to perform well and then to also do well in school um, really took a toll on me. And so I ended up pivoting into nutrition. Um, and luckily one of my athletic ac academic advisors had seen all my curriculum from school and suggested that I move into nutrition. She said, 
you know, all of these, you're going to end up studying anyway to be a dietitian and you won't lose your credits. So it's one of the best options. And if you decide to go back into medical school or whatever it is you want to do later on in life, um, you can always go back in and you, you would just have to take a couple more classes and that's about it. And so I was like, all right, like I was pretty much sold on that and just kind of went that pathway. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up in nutrition studying to be a dietitian. Yeah. Did you marry the two right away? Like your interest in running and then this interest in nutrition and, you know, try to put yourself on a path to doing what you're doing today? Or was it a little more circuitous than that? It was way more selfish (laughs) than than what it is now. Um, It was definitely um, uh, more of how do I use nutrition to stay thin and to, um, be a better runner. Right. But mostly to be thin. Um, it was very much rooted in that. Um, how do I not, um, become unhealthy or gain weight? It was definitely way more, way more selfish and egocentric as well. Um, yeah, it was like, I did nutrition for solely me. Um, and it wasn't until like having my eating disorder going through recovery, um, and, you know, finding myself at the rock rock bottom where I was like, all right, like something has to change here. And I remember thinking, um, and when I was, um, one, one, like one weekend in my dorm room and I was like feeling so lonely and at a really low point, I was injured at that time too. I remember thinking like, this really sucks. Um, and, um, when I get out of this, um, I'm going to, I know I'm going to help a lot of people. There has to be a reason why, I'm in this situation. Um, and I have to, I had to, I just had to hold on to something to get me out of that, um, mindset. So I think early on, um, luckily in that my eating disorder stages, I recognized like, okay, there has to be something here that's going to pull me through. And I just have to hold on to that. So I think the, the feeling of wanting to help others was still there. Um, but the eating disorder, um, it makes you give up everything for that one thing. And recovery is giving up that one thing to receive everything. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think, once I understood that the steps to starting to heal my relationship to food started to make more sense. Um, and I think too, just having a clear picture of like where I wanted to be headed and that was to help other athletes and to prevent, um, eating disorders from occurring, disorder eating from occurring because I had hit rock bottom. It wasn't fun. And I definitely would not wish it on anybody at all. Yeah. How long did you battle that eating disorder? So I had disordered eating um, starting when I was, I think at the tail end of my junior year. So even before I was recruited, I can think back and there were like disordered eating signs. I mean, I had had a lost period as well or missed period. So um, that was like one of the first physical signs that something was not right. Um, So I'd say since like 2000 and um, seven, and then I went into recovery in 2012. So I'll be coming up on 11 years next month. Yeah. And when you say you went into recovery, did you check Mm -hmm. yourself into a hospital and were part of a formal program or is it something that you worked through on your own? 
So I actually worked with a dietitian. Um, There's also a sports dietitian on staff at University of Houston Athletic Department. So I worked with her closely. And then I also worked with a therapist uh, on campus who was specializing in eating disorders. It was just extremely lucky to be there at the right time. Um, And then when my therapist ended up graduating from the department, I ended up being able to go and see her. And the athletic department has a funding, um, a funding account that allows for student athletes to take advantage of in medical situations. So um, my coach had advocated for me and the staff had advocated for me and I was able to receive funding for my therapy and my treatment. When you were in the the worst stages of your eating disorder, what was your relationship to running like at that time? You know, it's really interesting. Um, for a long time, um, I really thought that I was an over-exerciser. Um, and, I, I, you know, sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I was like made to believe that because I was a distance runner. Um, but... I would say like my relationship to running, um, I still loved it. I knew that, um, it was something that because I had started it really young and there were no, um, there was nothing attached to my body or anything else or nutrition related. I was really lucky to like, um, have a father that just like cultivated the love for it and like feeling happy about it and like, didn't care if I did well or not. He was just like, all right, like my daughter's an athlete. Great. Like, this is fun. We get to go and like watch her and support her. And I think because I had that early on, I don't like to, I don't think it was, um, like, I, I don't remember thinking like, um, like I need to do more running to compensate for this. Um, I just remember like when I couldn't run cause I was injured with an IT band issue, um, really missing the camaraderie and being around my teammates and my coach and um, having like a schedule and like somewhere to be because I didn't have anybody else. I was, you know, hours away from home with nobody else. Right. So I, like my family and the staff quickly became like my home and my family. Mm-hmm. So I remember being injured and not being able to be around people that I felt comfortable with. Um, so I think running always gave me a place to feel like myself. Um, and even now it's like really challenging to describe that to people, um, who are in eating disorder treatment or like that love to run. I think like sometimes it's really hard to differentiate. Is it disordered? Is it also, um, furthering or like, um, not, not helpful to the eating disorder or to the recovery process. So, um, I was really lucky that I was still able to continue to train. I mean, they did like put a lot of like regulations and like, all right, like you can train if you go to therapy, if you go to your sessions, like you can't do it unless you go to this. So like, it was like, I had to kind of meet them halfway. Um, and I remember, like whatever my coach said, like, that's what I would just do. If he was like, you can't run, um, these many days of the week, you're going to get in the pool. So I would just go and get in the pool for 30 minutes or whatever he said. So I remember just being like such a role follower because I was so afraid of losing running entirely and not being allowed to run at all. Yeah. Did your relationship with running change once you went through the recovery process? Um, I remember my coach, um, 
I remember graduating and feeling like a weight was lifted. Like I didn't have that pressure to be on it all the time. I could finally um, look forward to running in a way that I wanted it to. Um, And I remember my senior, like my fifth year that I was at University of Houston, Steve Magnus was my coach. Um, Prior to that, the person that had advocated for me was another coach. Um, And he was actually the one that like, identified like you have a problem you need to go to therapy (laughs) so um once he left uh, Steve Magnus came in um my fifth year and Steve had asked very early on um like why do you like to run and I said you know it's all about the connection like me feeling connected to myself me feeling connected to other things around me and I like the way that that makes me feel um, and he was like, all right, like, you know, we're going to like work on like, what is that exactly? And so I think after that, I like really thought about it and like, um, I didn't run with the watch at all. Um, I didn't run with like a GPS watch, I think until like 2018, to be honest, <laughs> I didn't have any of that. Um, and I ran like my first few marathons with like a janky Casio watch that just like restarted. I did not know my pace. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. I didn't know any of the mile markers. I went solely off of feel and that's how I ran for a really long time. So a lot of people are probably like gasping and like, can't believe it, but I really did not. Um, yeah, I just like really went based off of feeling and like held on to what running just made me feel early on as a kid. Yeah. Fast forwarding to, to, to today, many years later, um, knowing what you know now, having gone through everything that you've experienced, do you have periods where you still struggle with body image or your relationship to food? That's a good question. Um, I would say they're very far and few now. Um, I think now because I'm almost 11 years into it, um, recognizing the triggers, I think is like a big part of the recovery process and being non-judgmental about it. And those are things that you learn in therapy is like, recognizing your triggers like how do you manage stuff like that and I think you know um to be honest like stress and overwhelm is a trigger for me and it was when I was 18 years old like some things don't change but the things that do change are the way that you are able to adapt to it in your life cycle because Starla at 18 is not the same as as Starla in her 30s and I'm pretty sure I will not be the same Starla in my 40s and the way I respond to stress will be different So I think like for people who are in recovery and want to stay here for a really long time and like really want to work at it, recognizing that your responses to your triggers um, will also need to change because you are going to change throughout your life. And like that's part of being a human the same way as it is to being an athlete. Your training is going to change in the same way um, as well. So I think understanding that has been extremely helpful for me to recognize when things are feeling off early on. So that way I don't get to a point where I'm having a bad body day or a bad body image day. And, um, you know, maybe doing something that's not going to feel helpful or like restricting or whatever that coping mechanism is. Your eating disorder is a coping mechanism for whatever trigger response you're unable to handle. Yeah. I, I appreciate your honesty with that and sharing that. Um, and I think it's going to be something that a lot of people listening to this can resonate with. And, and it does, you know, just to speak for myself, resonate with me on, on some level, because I've never, I've talked about this in some other forums before. I was 
I was never clinically diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I definitely had disordered eating after college and I was trying to pursue running and just had a very unhealthy relationship with food and, you know, very, um, you know, poor relationship with my, my own body and, you know, kind of hit, hit rock bottom. Um, and, you know, learned a lot of lessons the, the hard way and like, you know, didn't work through them with formal help, but fortunately with, um, some supportive people in you know, in my life. And now, you know, in my forties, um, when I talk about this, it's like, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm not the same person that I was when I was, you know, 24 and going through this for, you know, for mm-hmm. the first time, but it's like, you still have, you know, you still have your moments, but if you've been able to strengthen and sharpen your tools over time, um, those moments are fewer and further in between. Um, but you're also better equipped to, you know, to work through them. Um, because I think uh, when a lot of people hit that rock bottom, it just feels so helpless and like, you, you're never going to be able to get out of, you know, get out of that place. Um, but I think, you know, by you sharing your story, hopefully by me sharing mine, you know, people listening to this who have found themselves in that place have a little bit of hope that they can, you know, they can work through that and get to a better place themselves. Exactly. Yeah. I think too, with recovery, um, people ask me like, you know, like when you recover is at it and it's like, no, no. (laughs) it's, it's really not. Um, and I, and I, I love explaining it in a way like it's really just like as cheesy as it sounds like it's truly a journey. Um, And I think like staying curious about recovery is probably what has kept me here the longest. Um, And I mean, like without relapsing um, either, like I've been able to be pretty level headed throughout the entire time. Um, And I think it's because I've been very curious about recovery in general and sometimes to um wondering like different parts that maybe I was trying to stuff down with the eating disorder um so different you know different types of traumas and things like that I've always been very interested in um and understanding and learning it and I think you know listening to different podcasts uh, reading different books um have also been extremely helpful and and I think even like expanding my identity past being a runner has been probably the most fruitful part of recovery, um, overall. Yeah. I I mean, that resonates with me and, and is also consistent with some of my own experience. And last thing I'll, I'll add to this before we move on is, recovery from, from anything. Um, there's a reason they call it a process, right? And I think it's because it's ongoing. Um, you never really reach this like end point. I mean, if you listen to, um, you know, recovering addicts, uh, they'll tell you it's a, you know, it's a, it's a process, you know, they get further removed from when they were in the, the worst of it, but it's like, they know mm-hmm. that, you know, if the, if the right trigger hits them, like it could all turn around, like, you know, very quickly. So it's just recognizing like, you know, it's a, it's a process and it's never going to be completely, you know, solved, but you know, with, with better tools, um, you're better equipped to like work through some of those, those tough moments. Um, where I want to go from, from there is just staying on this topic first of just like body image and relationship with food. And I'm curious to get your take on this because in, in my experiences, you know, a coach and like, you know, being able to, you know, share my own story with people when appropriate, or I think it'll be helpful. Um, I've realized that probably more people than we recognize struggle with their relationship to food and more mm-hmm. runners struggle with, you know, their, their, their body image, um, and their, you know, 
comfortability in their own body than I, I think gets talked about. Um, and I'm just curious, just in, you know, in your experience as, as a runner, but also in the work that you do, is that something that you've recognized as well? I would say a hundred percent. Um, I, I would say like about like 90% of my athletes have had some kind of body image concerns um, and that they don't have to necessarily have disorder eating or eating disorder um, diagnoses at all. Um, I think even like, let's say like after a marathon riding, you're not running. um, Somebody might feel like, Oh my gosh, I gained five pounds after my race. Like, um, and I do have to explain like, Hey, like that's actually pretty normal. normal. Like that's actually like very healthy for you when you're in peak performance and like you're on a race day, like that is one spot in time. You are not meant to be the same as that one spot in time for the rest of your life, nor is it healthy for your training cycle to be at that level of fitness or at that body fat percentage or that weight, the rest of your cycle, like that is not, um, that is not sustainable and uh, and it is uh, unrealistic as well. Mm -hmm. I think another important point to bring up here, and you'd kind of touched on this when you were introducing yourself. I think a lot of runners also have this idea of of what a runner should look like and try to strive to that ideal. I mean, speaking for for myself, when I was going through the, the worst of my disordered eating, I mean, that's, you know, part of what you know, led me down this path was like, oh, I've got to look like these guys if I want to run, you know, at that level. And and I see this with a lot of the age group athletes that, that I work with. They, they'll they say to me, like, I, I don't look like a, a runner. And I think trying to break down that wall and just letting people know there's no there's no one way that a runner looks. Um, you know, we come yeah. in all different, like, you know, shapes and sizes and, and getting people to be, you know, comfortable with that is, you know, is, is really important. And just like being comfortable, like in, you know, in your own body. And uh, I'm interested, like in some of the work that, that you do is how do you help people like just get comfortable with being in their own body? I think some of the things that I try to focus on, um, first and foremost is like, number one, how's running feeling, um, like looking at different kinds of factors that are non-scale or like appearance related. So, um, helping runners like figure out, like, are you feeling energized? How is your long run feeling? Like, are you feeling good at the end of it? Cause you shouldn't be, you know, um, you shouldn't be hobbling around at the end of your long run. Um, I also try to really help my athletes um, figure out as well, like um, I would say like, how are they feeling after meals? Uh, I think that's a big one. Um, Sometimes like runners can confuse feeling full with eating too much or satiety with like overeating as well. So recognizing the differences between like satiety, fullness, Like, did you eat way too much? Like, where are you on that scale? Um, And like, where do we need to maybe prioritize different things? I think nutrition and like having one-on-one help sometimes can like um, break up the weeds there and like Mm -hmm. um, help to identify what is actually happening in their body. Um, I think as well with other athletes, it's really getting to like, what is it are you actually striving for? Like, I understand you're asking for weight loss or that you want to have like a six pack or whatever it is. Um, But like, what are you hoping that that allows you to do? And then sometimes it's really like encouraging, Hey, you know, I understand that those are things that you feel like you need, 
but the way to get there is actually X, Y, Z process. And like sometimes just um, really focusing in on that, those things instead, and maybe those things will happen. Right. But we got to get to X, Y, and Z to help you get a BQ or to help you run sub three or to help you break for hour, whatever it is. Um, so it's like focusing on like the tiny things um, before we focus on like more of the weight or like um, physical appearance things ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Building off of that, like, in, in your opinion, for an athlete, what does a healthy relationship with food look like? I think a healthy relationship to food is um, being able to recognize when you're hungry, um, when you're not hungry, but you still need to eat because, which is like really, really hard for athletes to understand. Um, so being able to identify when you need to eat, um, even if you're not hungry, because you know that you have this goal in mind or that you have this thing that you just did. And so being able to recognize um, your body's needs, I think is a really healthy relationship. Um, Being able to go out and eat with friends and family and not feel anxious, Um, being able to be flexible with meals and not be so stringent either. Um, I think to being able to enjoy foods from childhood I think are another huge one with very little stress and anxiety. Um, I think those are um, some pretty healthy signs that somebody is in a healthy place, at least like from the things that I ask first, like those are some, uh, some really easy ways to identify if somebody's like struggling with food or anything like that. Or, I mean, sometimes I'll ask to like, um, like tell me what you eat for lunch. And some people will like tell me like, Oh, I don't eat any bread at all. And I'm like, okay, we need to, I need to understand why then. And then like we work through some of that. So sometimes it's just like, um, debunking some beliefs around specific food groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's dig into those questions a little bit more. Like when you're talking to an athlete for the first time and just trying to get an idea of, okay, what do you typically eat for breakfast? What do you typically eat for lunch or maybe before run after, you know, Mm -hmm. et cetera. What are some of the most like common, I don't want to say mistakes, but just common, um, things that, that you see or that you hear from, from people when you ask like some of those basic, you know, intake questions that, that kind of raise a red flag for you. Um, I would say like for breakfast, number one, um, sometimes I'll have clients that just don't eat enough protein. Um, and they just maybe don't know how to incorporate protein or, um, how much they might need or which foods have protein for that matter. Um, so I think that's a big one. Um, so like an example of that would be like, I just had oatmeal for breakfast and then I have to encourage, all right, well, did you make it with milk? what kind of milk did you make? Um, and then is there anything else within like, no, that's about it. And, um, then I'll maybe like encourage switching out a milk option, um, from almond milk to like a pea protein milk or one that's a higher milk option, like a, a cow's milk, for example. So making easy swaps like that is like where I start off with, and then I'll start adding on like some seeds, hemp seed, chia seed. Maybe I add in a protein powder if a person likes protein powder maybe an egg on the side. And so really encouraging, like, yes, I'm increasing what's in it, but I'm not necessarily, um, like the goal is not to make you gain weight. It's to actually improve your macronutrient and your micronutrient profile in a meal. So I'm just really trying to get you more nourished. Like that is the goal. Mm-hmm. Sometimes too, like making sure that somebody understands like a carb source and a protein source. So if I add an egg to an oatmeal, I'm just encouraging 
protein to help with satiety. Um, and so I'm not necessarily increasing more carb. Um, I'm actually increasing your protein and that's about it. So I think sometimes like identifying the two differences for people is helpful. Um, for lunch, maybe like I'll have clients that have like a typical chicken and a salad option, which is very, um, like I would say, um, eight out of 10 of my athletes will tell me that they have a chicken and a salad. Um, and so I have to encourage carb at lunchtime. So that's a pretty typical one. Um, and then sometimes clients just really struggle with pre-run snacks if they, um, if they're running in the afternoon. So then we work toward like um, increasing their carb at snack time there, making sure that they have enough for fueling prior to, and then dinner time as well. I see is like a huge um, struggle for a lot of people um, because people are working or there's not enough time or they just get bored of the same things over and over again. Mm -hmm. Along these lines, if someone comes to you and, you know, they tell you, I follow a very specific type of diet. I'm keto for example, or mm -hmm. trying to be low carb because I've read X, Y, and Z or saw something on the internet, or, you know, I'm a, I'm a high volume athlete. Um, I eat, you know, mostly, mostly all carbohydrates because they're easier on my stomach or I can't digest meat, whatever it, it happens to be. But I guess like they restrict themselves in some way, or they like lean heavily one way, you know, or the other in terms of like the macros that they're, emphasizing like what are your next steps when you hear something like that um i just try to ask like um when did this start was there a reason why you like um, wanted to incorporate more of a ketogenic diet have you found any benefits to it what are some of the things that you're noticing that aren't helping with running and so sometimes i'm just like applying act therapy, um, where, um, I'm asking a question. I kind of know where it's going to get headed, but I want the client to maybe start to piece together, um, some of the things that they know I'm going to say. Um, and I also am truly just curious, like, why did this person choose this option? Um, sometimes I ask too, are there other types of diets that you have tried anything else in particular, like whole 30, anything that you have found helpful there, not helpful, um, just getting a good picture. And again, this is all coming from a non-judgmental yep. point of view when I'm first asking. Um, and then based off of what that person's telling me, like maybe they're bonking during a long run, I'm like, all right, well, um, you know, what do you know about carbohydrates helping to fuel activity? And then we go from there. Um, sometimes too, I'm asking a little bit more about, um, GI issues. Sometimes clients, they have really bad experiences with certain kinds of carbs. So then they just remove everything and yep. they apply a ketogenic diet. So then I'm asking more about GI issues and then I'll ask, well, how about we can find a way to improve your GI issues and you don't have to be on a ketogenic diet anymore. And, um, we can actually improve X, Y, Z as well, if there's any other health conditions happening. So I think it's just like understanding why that person chose that thing. Cause in their head, it makes sense to them. And so I need to understand why it makes sense and then steer them back toward a healthier relationship if possible. Mm -hmm. Um, the last specific thing that I, I want to mention, because I see it all over the place these days is intermittent fasting. So if someone mm -hmm. is coming to you and they say, yeah, I, you know, I, I eat dinner at, you know, six o'clock and then I don't eat anything until, you know, 10 AM the next day. I, I think I, I know what you're going to say your, your next steps are, but I'm, I'm curious, like, what are your next steps in that situation? 
Yeah. Um, again, I just asked like, well, how's, you know, what are you running? Um, can mm-hmm. I get you to feel more often? Sometimes too, like with my female athletes, um, they do have a lot of GI issues. Those are typically the athletes that are running really early in the morning. Um, and so I'll, um, I really encourage them to start feeling a lot earlier. And then I just share like more information on, um, what they might be, you know, impacting as well. Like how is it hindering their performance, longevity, and maybe even some injuries as well that they might be sustaining because of, um, not eating enough. Um, I think too, sometimes clients mistake, um, like not eating in the morning or like not having an appetite is a good thing. And the way I like to phrase it is if you're hungry in the morning, good. That means that your metabolism is firing. That means that your training is working and that you're actually like doing what it needs to do. So we want to continue to add logs to the fire. Your metabolism is like a fire. We want to continue adding fuel to the fire. And the way that we do that is by having a pre-run snack and by having breakfast and then um, a snack in the morning if, if we need to do that. So I think like once people understand that their metabolism is like a fire in the morning, if you're hungry, that's good. You want to start fueling early on in the day. I think that's a good launching off point to talk about just fueling around running. Mm -hmm. And I mean, people run at different times of day. I mean, I hear this from my athletes because I ask the the questions and uh, oftentimes I'll hear, well, I I can't eat anything within, you know, an hour of Mm -hmm. running, two hours of running, three hours of running, whatever it happens to be. Or um, if I'm running for an hour or less, I don't eat anything. But if I'm running for, you know, an hour and a half or more, you know, I'll do, I'll do this. So um, let's just work through like some, what I think are common sort of use cases. Mm -hmm. The the person who is on a fairly tight schedule, but they're an early morning runner, you know, they, they get up at whatever hour and they're running like within an hour of, of waking up and they're just going for an easy run. Does that person need to fuel in any way before they go out the door? I'd say if they're doing a workout, um, cause some people do workouts that last about yeah. an hour or if they're going over an hour, I would say yes, a hundred percent. You want to fuel, um, and options that are going to be easy. Like even if somebody is getting out of bed, heading out the door in like 10 minutes, I don't care. There is an option for you. <laughs> um, to me, it's like a non-negotiable. Um, and some options would be like, you can do a liquid carb option. There are many sports drinks out there, um, like in the world. Like I feel like there's so many out, uh, out on the market. Um, some people can also use juice as well. That's another easy one. And juice has such a bad rap. Um, but I'm like, Athletes, if you are able to understand nutrition and apply it in a way that's going to be most helpful for you and adapt, juice has a place in your diet too. Um, so I always recommend juice or a sports drink option. And that can be Tailwind, Scratch Labs, Gatorade, Gatorade Endurance. Um, yeah, there's a ton of them out there. Martin, like any of those options will work just fine. Um, you just want some liquid carbohydrates in. And it's like a threefold option. You get hydration. And you also get electrolytes. So it's like everything all in one. Like I can't choose a better option for you to pick if you're going to go out in 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, why, why is that so important if you're going to do a workout to get those liquid carbs? Yeah. In? So you want to be fueling your muscles with energy. Um, and that's one of the fastest, quickest ways to do it. Um, I also really like to explain blood sugars as well. Um, so typically like whenever in the nighttime, your blood sugar is coming down. If you're somebody that has a lower blood sugar in the morning, 
you want to make sure that you get it back up before you head out for your run um, as well. And I think that's really important throughout your exercise. Your body's going to be able to use that energy steadily. Um, some people report like sudden drops in blood sugar, but I'm like, whenever your body's using um, energy that you just put in, it's going to use it differently. And it's a little bit more um, consistent and slower as well. Same thing as like, if you fuel during a run, it's not going to like come down as like we perceive it to and like come back up and back down. It actually like is much more, much, much more steady than we think. Um, so I always recommend that too, for, for clients. Um, even if somebody is starting off already high, that could be other effects that are happening, um, throughout the nighttime that can be fixed at dinner time. So if somebody's not eating enough carb at dinner, that might be causing a higher blood sugar. So you want to correct that by having um, more carb at dinner. So either way you spin it, <laughs> you probably need to fuel a little bit more with carbs too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, staying mm -hmm. on this topic of fueling before you go out to run for those folks who run later in the day, whether it's at lunch or right after work in the evening. Um, one of the things that I hear a lot from my athletes mm -hmm. is they have a sensitive stomach and they're worried about eating too much during the day and feeling heavy when they go out later or, you know, having to run for the bathroom. Um, but obviously, I mean, I don't think someone should go through an entire day without, you know, fueling themselves properly. So, you know, very generally, like what's a good way to approach fueling throughout the day when you know you're going to be running later? Um, I would say definitely being consistent. So having breakfast and lunch, typically, like if somebody waits too long, of course, you're going to eat too much prior to heading out. If you haven't eaten enough, you're going to feel super hungry at 2 p.m. Um, and you might overeat. So you might feel more heavy than normal. So you want to make sure that you do have breakfast in an appropriate time um, in the morning. And then you have lunch as well as an appropriate time. And then a, a snack that it's not going to make you feel weighted down or you go to a carb option. That's a liquid option. Um, so I think like understanding that um, the more consistent you are with you, with your fuel, you'll also be more consistent with bowel movements as well. Um, I think that also goes with hydration too pretty nicely hand in hand is if you start hydrating when you wake up um, and you don't have coffee right away. Um, I always recommend that like if you have GI issues can we have some water and breakfast and then coffee because coffee will mask your hunger mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it can exacerbate GI issues for some people depending on how much caffeine you're drinking yeah um, let's move on to like fueling on the run and this is an interesting one because I think most people when they think about eating and drinking on the run, the first thing that comes to mind is I do that on the long run when I'm training for my marathon. Like, you know, it's been drilled into my head by my coach and popular running media that, okay, you must fuel, you know, on your long run. How do you think about fueling on the run? Is it something that should just be saved for the long run? Or is there a use case where you can fuel when you're out for an easy run or during a, a hard workout? I'd love to dig into that with you. Yeah. Um, I love this so much because um, yeah, I'm glad that people are feeling on long runs <laughs> like that is great. But if your run is 
going into that 75 minute mark, 90 minute mark on a regular basis. And some people do hit miles like that much. I know most of my runs are about 90 minutes, um, uh, an hour and 20 to 90 minutes or longer sometimes. Um, and I feel during all of those runs. Yeah. Um, and I really think that if you're going to be running hard in a marathon and you've never taken fuel water running hard or not enough times, you definitely should do it in a workout. And if you're struggling to figure out what options to use and your only day that you're fueling is that one day, you might get like 10 opportunities to try out maybe eight as well, like depending on how long you're running. Um, but you just get that many and then you're going to go do your race. To me, that's not enough time. Um, like runners need to practice more their feelings so you can feel that much more confident in what's going to happen on race day. Um, so I think fueling during hard workouts and especially if your runs are going into that 75 minute plus range, you should definitely be fueling more often. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because I, this is one of the biggest battles that I fight with many of my athletes, especially the, the marathoners. One, it's just letting them know there's a difference between fueling during a long run when you're running easy versus when you're running at race pace. Like one's a high octane event and the other one, not so much. And, you know, how you tolerate that fuel at race pace versus like call it two minutes per mile slower is going to be, you know, a lot a lot different. Um, and it's not until they, they practice that, that they, they realize it. And that's why they have trouble on, on race day. And it also just kind of like blows my mind, how many athletes, um, in training just don't really put that much thought into it. And they're like, Oh, I'll just grab gels or whatever's available on, on the, on the course as if like, that's, you know, it's just like going into it with a hope and a prayer that it's, that it's going to work out. And it's like, no, this is like, especially for, for performance in, in the marathon, half marathon specifically, like, um, that is something you need to practice as much as your pacing, as much as you test out your shoes, um, whatever it, you know, whatever it happens to be, cause it can really like make or break your race. Um, and, and like you can train yourself to, to run on a low tank, but I think you're leaving a lot on the table there. Um, but if you can, if you can train yourself to fuel properly, fuel regularly, um, and do that, you know, do that in training, um, you know, you can really make those big breakthroughs on race day. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Sometimes I see clients where they're like, um, forever trying to be cute and they tell me their strategy and it's like two gels. And I'm like, that's like 15 minutes off once I get you like up to where you need to be. And sure enough, most of the time it's like 15 minutes off. Like, um, and like, I always get excited by it. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, like you're just, there's so much potential here. Um, and it like, yeah, whenever I see stuff like that, it, it really gets me excited because I know how much better people will feel. Mm -hmm. And like, I've been in a marathon before where I get to the 10 K and like, I feel like, um, I have wings on and like nothing is hurting. Like, I think when people only had bad experiences in the last 10 K, like that yes. crushes me because I know how good it feels and how exciting and exhilarating that feels. And like, if nobody has ever experienced that, um, you're truly missing out on a full marathon experience in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. 
I just had one of my athletes two and a half weeks ago experience this for the first time where he was able to race the last 10K of the marathon rather than just survive it. And and a big part of that was just making some changes to his fueling. And and this is actually a good segue into my, my next question because I'm curious how you respond to the person because this this was this person who says, oh, yeah, I, I'll start taking gels after, you know, 45 minutes, an hour 15 or, or an hour and a half. And like I just – I mean I hear that and I'm like uh, – that that's that's not going to work. Um, we've got to like we've got to change some things. I'm curious like how you respond when someone tells you that. Yeah, um, I always respond. Um, if you're waiting that long, you're waiting. You're you're making your body work too hard already for an hour and fifteen. Like like that's already too long that your body's been working on e. Um, even if you've had breakfast, even if you've already hydrated, even if you took a gel before, like you're already setting yourself up to one have GI issues as well. Like that's not a good scenario to be in at all. Um, because your body will, your, your, the blood is going to go to your muscles. Um, the harder it gets, the higher the temperature gets as well, your core body temperature, it's going to go to your muscles instead. And so when people have GI issues, um, it's usually because they're waiting too long, um, or they're dehydrated and they haven't taken enough water earlier on in the race so i always encourage if you even want to just reduce gi issues like you need to start fueling a lot earlier when blood is actually helping um the carb digest down yeah yeah um last last question on on this topic how do you think Mm -hmm. about fueling frequency on the run whether it's you know a a training run where Mm -hmm. you know you're running call it 90 minutes to two hours or, you know, during the, the marathon itself, do you try to keep it consistent in training and in racing in terms of what you're taking and, and how often do you try to put yourself on a schedule, like from the very beginning, like, okay, I'm going to start fueling, you know, 20 minutes in and every 20 minutes thereafter, every 30 minutes and 30 minutes thereafter. I'm just really curious to get your take on how you handle that. Um, how I personally handle my fueling, I actually fuel every 5k. So that's about every 20 minutes for my pace. Um, so I take three gels per hour, more or less. Um, and I started doing that maybe in 2019. Um, and I just kind of kept it ever since. Um, so I do that for hard effort days and then for my race days, especially. So, um, I like doing that a little bit more just so I get some, some more carbon. Um, typically like for like easy days, easy long runs, I'll maybe do every 30 minutes. Um, and I usually do stick to the same gel. Um, and I'd stick to the same hydration strategy most of the time. So that way I know like how I'm going to feel with X amount of fluid, um, before my workout starts or during a workout. So that way I can simulate it a lot better for my race day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you adjust the, um, both fueling side of it and I'll say fueling in terms of like carbs and calories and then also the hydration side of it for weather conditions. Um, you know, if it's, if it's extra warm out and super humid versus when, you know, it's colder and maybe a bit drier. Okay. So if I am going to go into a colder marathon, so like Boston 2018, I was there that year, most gels I ever took, I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think I took like four gels per hour and I was double fisting a gel. 
um, because your body is going to use more energy to keep you warm um, in really, really cold weather. So if clients feel like they're more sore in cold months or really hungry in cold months, you probably need to be fueling more often. You probably need to increase your carb um, and you'll feel way better. So I remember doing that race and I'm more than sure I got through that race in one piece without um, hypothermia because I fueled so much and I still grabbed cups that day too. If I yeah. could interject here, I also raced Boston 2018. I ended up having a good day. And my my issue was by the end of the race, I have really bad Raynaud, so I had zero feeling in my hands. And I tried to grab gels out of my pocket and drop and just drop them because I had no function um, in my fingers. What saved me that day was my wife was at 10K and I grabbed a bottle of, of more than 320 from her. So it was like 320 calories, I think 80 grams of carbs at, at 10K. And I ran with that thing for a while and I drank the whole thing down. It ended up being the only fuel I got in that day. And I definitely like ran out of gas the last three miles just because I wasn't able to get anything in. But I feel like if I didn't get that bottle, I would have ended up on the side of the road somewhere just because I was working so hard mm-hmm. to, you know, to, yeah. to keep myself going. And I saw that with a lot of people as well. I mean, obviously those conditions are tough, but I think more people than one who admit struggled that day because they weren't able to get in enough fuel. And whether that was because they they didn't feel like they needed it because it was cold, so it was a mistake on that standpoint, or if it was a similar situation to mine, where it's like they physically could not open the gel and like, you know, get the, you know, get the stuff in. I mean, I think that was probably more of of an effect on people that day than just the, you know, the actual like cold conditions. Yeah, that was tough. Um, I had um, some hand warmers that had pockets up front and I had hand warmers in there. So I think like that was probably um, just like a, like something that I had done, like not even thinking it through. I was just like, oh, I might need to keep my hands warm. Um, and yeah, I just got lucky by doing that. And then I remember I still grabbed Gatorade. I mean, it was probably very watered down Gatorade, <laughs> but I know I grabbed some Gatorade. Um, yeah. And that day I, yeah, I remember feeling or feeling early on. Cause I did feel like hungry um, before the first hour was over. Cause I was working so hard. Mm-hmm. So I remember thinking, well, good thing I packed two extra gels with me today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I took like, I think 10, 11 gels, something like that on the course. Yeah. That's, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. This is a good segue because one thing that I noticed for myself for the first time five years ago, when I finally figured out how to fuel properly on my long runs, hard workouts and, and marathons was how much better I came out of them. Um, I mean, I would finish marathons or, or even just hard workouts. And I mean, I'd be useless the like at minimum the rest of the day, but usually for like a couple of days afterward. But I found when I was able to get down like four to five gels for the first time in a marathon, I just came out of it so much better. I mean, I, my body felt like it had raced a marathon, but I just didn't have that depleted feeling that I would always have at the end of those long efforts. And I just felt like, I mean, and this is completely anecdotal, but like there was just less muscle damage um, because I had been able mm-hmm. to fuel them, you know, through a, a very hard effort. And and I mean, that's just kind of like over the last almost six years, like kind of proven itself out like time and time again, like that's been like a huge unlock for me and something that I try to get across to my athletes. So in talking about like fueling for recovery, like let's, let's start there. Like how does actually fueling yourself properly on the run just set you up to recover even better afterward? Yeah. 
So I would say it definitely helps reduce like how much you're depleted at the end of the run. Um, we want to prevent that from happening. And I would say too, even like mental depletion, like mm-hmm. the amount of fuel that helps your mind stay mentally focused and in into whatever you're doing. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest benefits. Uh, and it, over time, like that just adds to an athlete's confidence. Like I've seen it over and over again, where um, an athlete will start feeling in a workout, they can hit their times. Yeah. Like they're not as scared to push a little further. They're not as scared about the workout because like, they're like, all right, like I felt pretty good last time. Maybe this will go well again. And like just that little bit of confidence and optimism that happens on a weekly basis. I mean, that's what really like fuels like people's optimism when they're headed to the start line, I think Um, on top of like executing and like crossing everything off for some people. I think like the confidence you get from workouts is like a huge one. Um, So I think like that really adds to it. Um, And then recovery wise, um, I would say like fueling hydration wise is a huge Mm -hmm. one. Um, I'd say like if anybody is struggling with fueling, start with hydration first. That's going to be one of the main ways that you even prevent GI issues from occurring is like making sure that you set your body up with enough hydration. Your electrolytes are a huge one, especially in the summertime. Um, Electrolytes are going to help prevent anemia from also occurring. Other micronutrient deficiencies that we see from the gut, like magnesium, like that is an electrolyte that is in your products. Like if you have a lot of sleep issues, um, even like Charlie horses, like potassium is also in a lot of products. So I think like electrolytes totally overlooked as well. It's very individualized per person, but if you can like get down enough hydration and electrolytes, I think that is like really, really key, especially in the summer because people will come to me feeling really lethargic, exhausted, and they're just chronically dehydrated. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you bring that up because that's something I've, I've noticed as well. And I encourage all my athletes start their day. Like first thing that you do when you get down to the kitchen is start with an electrolyte drink, whether that's a tab that you drop into a a pint glass. I mean, it's a scoop that you have to put in. I mean, that just gets your day off to a good start because um, Mm -hmm. I've also found when people don't get their day off to a good start or set that tone, it tends to follow them through the rest of the day. And then like that compounds, you know, over time. Um, And then it's staying on top of it throughout the day, because I feel like that's one of those like low hanging fruits that um, should seem obvious, but a a lot of people just, just really Mm -hmm. like neglect. And and it's, it's not because they're intentionally trying to not drink enough, Mm -hmm. but by not drinking enough, like they, all the things that you just said, tend to, you know, tend to occur. And it's like that, that can get you like a lot of the way there. Um, and just like address a lot of these like GI issues that happen, um, weird cramps, Charlie horses, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I'd even say like mus- muscle tissue things. So like hamstring issues, like tendon issues, like some of that might be related to hydration. I mean, with football players, like this is why they have people walking around with water all the time because they have very large muscle groups they're out with a lot of padding they're usually out in like very hot temperatures for very long periods of time as well and like you need to prevent um a hamstring from you know from being pulled like that's a very expensive hamstring as well so like of course they're going to be out there handing water as soon as they get off the field same thing with an athlete that's running for an hour and a half to two hours like you want to be making sure that you're hydrating because um, eventually you might have to pay for your hamstring to get fixed too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Great. Um, moving on to, to actually after the run, um, you know, we see in our, our running groups or around the office, I mean, people will, um, throw down a smoothie within, you know, call it an hour of, of finishing a run or, you know, they'll try to get something in. Um, I think we generally know like, okay, you should try to fuel as, as, quickly as possible, like after running within a certain period of time, I'd love to just get your, you know, your thoughts on that and what you encourage your clients to do in terms of like starting that refueling process once they're done running. Yeah. I usually encourage if possible, like get in some fuel as soon as possible. What that fuel is, is going to depend on how hungry you are, what's available. Um, and what do you, what do you prefer at the end of the day? Like what sounds good? Um, if that's like a liquid option, like a yogurt drink, a ready to drink protein options, so like a bottled protein, um, uh, things. And I would even say like chocolate milk's a great one Core power, only what you need or gain. Um, there's also a lot of powder mixes out there that are recovery focused. So they have carbs, electrolytes, and protein. Um, and those are typically the things that we want to make sure that we're getting in um, as well as soon as possible. Um, so those are really helpful. I would say like the Scratch Labs or Chatha Mix is probably my favorite one. And then there's a lot of different ones on the market from Goo, Momentus, and like other brands. Um, so I'd say like find an option that works well. Um, and then if, if somebody's able to eat a solid option, preferably over the next hour or two after drinking a liquid option. And that's just going to help set up the recovery process right away. So having a solid option like eggs, toast, avocados, some fruit, um, that's going to be a typical option. You can do protein pancakes from like Kodiak cakes with a Greek yogurt, yeah, those are great. Um, burrito. Yeah. There's so many options there to choose from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you think about, um, with, with all of this, and I guess this is more nutrition in general, um, macros. I mean, we've talked a bit about the importance of carbohydrates. We know that we need to get protein and fat. I think a lot of people have questions about like, what should that ratio be? I mean, you know, you read some stuff, it's like, well, it should mostly be carbs, like 60% carbs, you know, 30% protein, 10% fat or, or whatever, however you want to like kind of skew those numbers. Do you believe there is like, uh, an exact breakdown that people should keep in mind? Does it differ for everyone or does it differ, you know, depending on, you know, who you are and where you are in your training? Um, I think it's going to depend on like where somebody's maybe at. And it depends on what kind of approach they want to take. If they want to take a more visual approach, I might encourage more of like a plant a performance plate method um, where somebody's looking at 30 to 50% carbs on their plate, depending on the training cycle they're in. If somebody like wants more numbers, then I usually encourage like, Hey, you're going to have to calculate your calorie needs and then do a whole breakdown from there. And typically like you don't want to go under 40% carb then, especially if you're training for an endurance race. So um, from there, that can be anywhere from 40 to 60% of your total calories coming in from carbs. And then you can break down the protein and fat from there next to. So um, it's kind of like a yes and no kind of question, but I think it just depends on the approach somebody wants to take. Um, And I think too, like even breaking down numbers and then applying that visually is really helpful for a long-term sustainable um, approaches. Like, because I don't want people to be counting numbers all day long and measuring. So like learning how to take a visual approach is sometimes really helpful to, really encourage like all kinds of foods as well. And like encouraging like 
pot style meals because it's not going to be broken down into like segments either. Yeah. Yeah. How do you counsel people to not get too into the weeds on what I call exactitude. Um, so like being like, I've got to have exactly this many grams of carbohydrate and this many grams of protein or this much, you know, this much fat, because as, as we all know, like whether it's that or whether it's like our, you know, splits on our watch for workouts, like we can get like overly heady about the numbers and become obsessed with them. And then like, we're not focusing on the right thing. Like we kind of lose the, the forest for the trees type of, you know, situation. Um, and I think that's something that's a, that's a common struggle for a lot of people. So how do you counsel people who are in that boat? Um, I always recommend that they understand that these calculations, they are estimates, um, and that they say that too, like it's an estimated energy need. Um, these are estimates. Um, and so, um, I always like try to make that very clear is that like, I can like get a range of what you're going to need. Um, sometimes you might need more. Sometimes you might need less. Sometimes we might be right in that amount for you. Um, so I think it's just like applying and understanding that, um, you know, if you did want to like hold yourself to those numbers, you may have to like track for a little bit until you get comfortable with not tracking. Um, I think like just having some flexibility and understand that you are going to have to have some flexibility, whether you plan for it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice. It's like using that tracking maybe initially as a tool, um, and then get to the point where, you know, you can trust yourself enough to make the the right decision mm-hmm. in a certain situation. And I think of that much like I tell my athletes with like their GPS watches, I'm like, that's a tool. Um, and it's like, you don't want to be too tied to it or heart rate monitor or whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be. It's mm-hmm. like, use it to like, just gain an understanding of, you know, what that effort feels like or what that pace feels like. But, you know, you don't need to be looking at it every two seconds when you're going around the track. Like that's not healthy either. And I think like you could take a very similar approach. It sounds like to thinking about how, you know, you put your plate together at dinner time. Exactly. Yeah. And I think too, like even recognizing, you know, let's say like, let's say somebody takes like a chicken breast, like a typical chicken breast without even thinking, weighing it. And like, they have a potato and broccoli on their plate and they finish their meal and they are like, all right, I'm a little bit more hungry. Maybe I should have some more protein. Like let's try out and see how this feels. Sometimes like that is probably one of the most helpful things that I do with a client is like, even just encouraging like, Hey, can we add like two extra meatballs to your plate? Like we're adding in more protein. Can we just see how more satisfied you feel by just adding in more protein? You're in a base phase of your training. You're going through a lot of miles right now. We got to, you know, prioritize that. You're not in like a peak phase where we might have to have more carb, but let's like, you know, really emphasize protein because you're really, you know, packing on miles at this point. So I think like understanding to the phases of your training, where you might need to add more protein, where you might need to add more carb is like very helpful. And like, just even breaking it down and, you know, what are you doing now? Can we add an extra bread slice here? Can we um, maybe add half a scoop of rice here just to increase your carbs a little further? And like, it can be that practical. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing I want to talk about related to this is is kind of optimization. I think a lot of people think about nutrition, much like they think of a, a lot of things, or at least the type of personality that running attracts. Like I want to try to like optimize 
everything. And I mean, you've talked in this conversation about, you know, in certain instances, like before a run, like having a liquid carb sports drink um, that you can, you know, sip on 10 minutes before you go out and have that actually be beneficial Mm -hmm. to you. And obviously, you know, specific products that we need to use like during a race, but then, you know, I think runners who are looking for information on nutrition, they see, oh, like a my pre-race breakfast, uh, everyone says, oh, like a, a bagel with some kind of spread and like a banana, right? Or like, oh, dinner is going to be, you know, pasta and a meatball or chicken and, and rice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you are the perfect person to talk to talk to about this. I mean, as a Latina, I mean, there's a, there's like an ethnic and cultural component to just food in general. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. like as a, as like a a son of an Italian American immigrant, like I grew up with like certain foods that, you know, someone would look at on the surface and be like, you should never eat that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I actually really enjoy it. Um, so like I, I try to keep that in my diet and realizing like, there's gotta be a balance there, but I think you know, when people start taking their running seriously and they're trying to address the nutrition component, they almost mm-hmm. become like too like regimented about it. And then also like restrictive of things. It's like, well, you know, I can't have, you know, the, you know, my grandmother's meatballs that I've enjoyed, you know, forever type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like just how you think about that and certainly how you counsel, you know, people who run into similar struggles. Um, I'd say in terms of recognizing cultural differences, um, I think that's probably one of the hardest places to counsel, but I think probably one of the most rewarding for the client to see. Um, Because I think like for me as a practitioner, like, and even just thinking philosophically about running, like you can't show up to race day as half of yourself. Like if you're cutting out parts of your identity to fit into this one thing, like, it's, it may not be worth it in the end, or you're always going to feel like half of you is missing. Um, and like, that's just from, you know, me personally as well, having the experiences that I had as a Latina woman in, in running and racing. So, um, I didn't feel like I ran my best until like I brought all of myself into the miles. Um, so really like educating the clients on, you know, that there are different carb options out there, that there are different preparation methods to fall back on to make food um, that they enjoy. I think too, like flavors are also very specific to cultures. So I really love to encourage, like we can make something that you might feel is like more for a runner and like make it fit for like with your, with your cultural food preferences and like make it taste the same way that you like it. Um, so I think like there's ways to do it, but um, I'd say for me personally, I've been able to get there because of um, my love of food. And I think um, living in Houston, I'm also like very much exposed to all kinds of fantastic food. Um, and it's Houston's a very indulgent city. So um, I have everything on at my fingertips, to be honest. So uh, I think that also helps. But I think to like helping clients also maybe even like manage GI issues. And um, sometimes like they may not have the cultural foods that they need or like they prefer enough. And sometimes that's why they're having GI issues. Um, yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. Cause you kind of go into like nutritional genomics a little bit and like gut microbiome stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Last two things that I want to, touch on with you. Um, one is, is going to be just like race week nutrition. Um, I mean, as we're having this conversation, we're kind of getting into the spring 
marathon season. I know like as we get closer to a race, um, people's focus starts to narrow and they want to dial in all the details to make sure that they can set themselves up for success mm-hmm. on race day. And I mean, this happens in the training too. Um, you see people who will just do things drastically differently the week of a race when they're, when they're tapering versus what they've done the entire training cycle. And I'm, I'm interested in how you counsel people from a nutritional standpoint as they're tapering down their training, you know, leading into a race and they want to make sure that they set themselves up for a good performance. Yeah. So one of the first things I get asked about is if nutrition should change. And I say, no, like it's not going to change into your carb load. Um, that's the only time that we change anything. And even then we're just emphasizing more carbohydrate protein is still going to be part of your carb load. Healthy fats are going to be part of your carb load. And then depending on, um, how much GI issues somebody's happening, that's where we'll maybe de-emphasize vegetables and fiber and make some swaps there. But in terms of um, like the two-week taper, nothing should change. Um, I try to encourage like be as consistent as possible, meaning that you're eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner just like you normally do. If you have a snack, fantastic. Like you just want to be as consistent as possible because your body is on a deloading phase. So we have to reload and also encourage that your body is resting and that it's going to be able to repair itself in time for race day. And like, that is a key thing that I hope runners understand is that you're reloading with nutrition. You're helping to repair nutrition because you just went through 10 plus weeks a really, really hard activity, like a very periodized time um, in the year where you put on a lot of volume and intensity. So this is the two week time where your body really needs you to help itself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my next question just segues off of that coming out of the race um, when you, you know, are recovering, should be recovering and not getting right back into training like nutritionally, would you change anything there? Would it be reintroducing some things back into, you know, your, your weekly routine that maybe you de-emphasize, like you said, fiber or something like that, um, heading into the race or, or, you know, I hear people all the time, like, I'm going to let myself go a little bit after the race and not be quite as strict. I'd love to get just your, your thoughts on all of that. Yeah. Um, so I always encourage like definitely get in some anti-inflammatory foods like that might be a little bit more healthy fats in your diet from salmon, different fatty fish, nuts, almonds, um, pistachios, seeds, like things like that. Like you might want to incorporate more, definitely get in some color, whether it's through vegetables, fruits, things like that is also going to be helpful. You still want to have carbohydrates. I think clients try to take it out. Um, and that is a key thing that you still need as part of the repair process. Um, it's still part of recovery nutrition, carbs, protein, and fluids. So I always still try to encourage that. Just because you're not running doesn't mean that you don't need carb. Your brain still needs carb and your body needs carb to still repair itself. Um, I think to for a lot of my female athletes, I try to actually get them to have some more red meat afterward. Um, after a marathon, I just find like it really helps them feel better, feeling less groggy, like really, um, encourage a little bit more of that iron to be replenished a little bit faster. So I do encourage like having red meat or bison on the plate a little bit more often after a marathon too. Sometimes if people crave, um, or burger afterward, I'm like, good, go eat a burger, get burger. go get, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I lied. That wasn't my last question because something you just said was like, oh, we haven't talked about this. But um, differences between men and women. I know for my women, especially that that I work with, um, especially when they're training at a very high level, certainly as they get older, like we're paying attention to, you know, their iron levels, their ferritin levels, that sort of thing, because it can drop very quickly. And as we know, that can be related to performance. I think that's just like one easy, obvious one. Um to, to pay attention to when training hard and certainly in recovery, but just like different considerations for men versus women when it comes to nutrition on a more global scale. Um, I would say um, one of the key things for women is, of course, a regular menstrual cycle. That is like number one. Um, if a client or a runner is Um, having a delayed period or their period changes during a training cycle. Sometimes I do have to encourage like, Hey, talk to your coach. Can you take an extra rest day? Like over the next couple weeks until your cycle is, is um, a little bit more, more, more normal. Maybe you're taking on too much stress or you need to find um, a way to balance out other stressors as well. Like that's a key one. Or we, we either have to really work hard at increasing overall nutrition, like, um, either the training comes down, um, and your nutrition comes up, um, or you do have to stop or or like take some more rest days. I think that is like something that a lot of female athletes don't like to hear, but your menstrual cycle is extremely important indicator of your health during a, a training cycle. Sometimes too, people feel really crappy. And that is like one of the first signs that they can recognize. And so, um, kudos to athletes that can recognize it and, and that take a step back and try to readjust stuff because um, if anything, like that's going to be a telltale sign of um, what's going to happen on race day for you or after race day for that matter. So yeah. menstrual cycle, number one, like you want to make sure that that stays as regular as possible. Mm-hmm. Iron, calcium, vitamin D, really important. Um, those are also really key, of course, for like preventing fractures. Um, and then iron related stuff is also really key to, to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe my last follow-up, I can't promise for, for sure. But mm-hmm. how do you feel about supplementation when it comes to a, a lot of those things? I feel like the mm-hmm. world is kind of divided on that says like, oh, well, mm-hmm. there's a reason we have supplements because it's for things that you can't get through nutrition. And then others who say, well, you know, you should be able to get everything or most everything that you need through nutrition. I'd love to just like understand where you kind of fall on that. Yeah. Um, I'm always like if supplementation, it's a temporary option, um, for, from what I know, there's not a supplement that you can take that's going to help your menstrual cycle return. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like, um, iron, um, I would say like it is helpful to have an iron supplement, but if you're repeatedly having iron issues, it's worth like really working at it nutritionally um, because there might just be some other nutrient deficiencies that are impacting the absorption. So um, I always like encourage like we can do a supplement for a small period of time, but really improving the diet is going to just help those stores stay up a lot longer. And then depending on what the panel looks like, um, we're going to see a huge improvement in other areas too. So like that is a huge one for women. Like, yes, you can take a supplement. Um, and yes, you can get an infusion. Um, but 
I always encourage, you know, after that really work on improving it through the diet. I would say for me personally, um, cause I was like a plant-based diet, a plant-based runner for like a really long time. Um, even through the trials, I took an iron supplement. And after that, I started incorporating more animal-based protein again. And ever since then, like I haven't needed to use an iron supplement. And in fact, my iron, my ferritin went up in this last training cycle that I had from September until March. So my iron, my ferritin stores improved. And that was like solely through diet over the last two years. So it takes time, but like it definitely can be done. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we wrap up, anything that we missed as it relates to just fueling nutrition and sustainable performance? Now I think we hit everything actually. We talked about pre-run, intra-run, a little bit of hydration, electrolytes, female nutrition needs. Um, I would say too, because this has come into my DMs a lot more, is birth control and nutrition. Um, So I always encourage uh, if somebody's on an oral birth control or taking oral contraceptives, definitely work on your micronutrient panel. It is impacting abilities, your ability to um, actually absorb minerals that you really need, like B vitamins. Um, like that is a major one and also other minerals. And sometimes that is linked over to what I see some of the iron stores, um, being depleted. So, um, whatever method somebody uses to like to, um, prevent pregnancy, to regulate your cycle, like totally up to you, but definitely educate yourself on um, what minerals you need to make sure that are in your diet. So that way, if you choose to come off of it, um, you're having the least challenges and that you don't have um, mineral deficiencies that are impacting other things later on down the road. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing just your experience, your knowledge, and your expertise here with everyone. Before we wrap this one up, where can folks listening to this find you online if they're not following you already? And like, not only just like follow you, but I mean, you're putting great information out into the world. So in addition to what we covered here, I mean, there's a lot more that that's coming from your channels on a weekly basis. Yeah, so they can find me on my Instagram at Starla underscore shines. And then um, they can also subscribe to my newsletter as well. There's a link in my bio to, to subscribe to that. So yeah, that just put on some information, some tips and things to remember throughout the week for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for just sharing all of this information with all of us and wrap it at that. All right, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. If you could, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into this from. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners to discover the show. Also, a big thank you to my annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder for making it possible. Check out themorningshakeout.com slash partners to take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. Before we go, I'd like to give a quick shout out to John Summerford, who has edited and produced every episode of the podcast, and also Chris Douglas, who is my right-hand man and helps to keep this ship afloat. And that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.